What's up, everyone? This is episode 102 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I want to start off by thanking everyone that listened to my conversation with Steve last week. If you haven't listened to that one yet, make sure to have it queued up so you can listen to it after this one. I know he's become a bit of a familiar voice on this show, and truth be told, every conversation I have with him is a lot of fun for me. But like I said last week, I think he offers a unique approach to collecting, and I want people to be able to see and hear examples of that. Um, Also, he recorded a pretty cool mail day video for his Instagram on Monday. It's about seven minutes long, but it is well worth your time. Make sure you check that out. You can find that under his handle, which is at showley2003. As for this week's episode, I have a number of topics lined up for you. I'm going to give a quick recap of a 100-plus table card show I attended this past weekend. Then I've got a few remarks on new basketball products. As usual, you're going to get a mail day segment. And then I'm going to close by talking a little bit about Worth Point. Because something pretty significant happened this week. I don't see a lot of people talking about it, so you want to stay tuned for that. Okay, so let's start with this card show. And I've talked some about this show before. It's the biggest one in the Central Florida area. And I know, you know, people told me we don't even have card shows where we're at. Well, it seems like Florida has a card show about every week. So I don't recap every one of them. But um, this one is by far the most active. And I know people have told me they like hearing updates uh, from the wild, so to speak. Apparently, Steve Aoki was there the night before I went. So people were talking about that you know, whatever. I'm I'm assuming he was in town for the Super Bowl, but it got people excited either way. Um, I know, you know, for a lot of people that legitimizes things when somebody big shows up. Um, From what I heard though, you know, whether he was there or not, the money was flowing Friday night. I guess there was a $120,000 deal that went down, which is kind of wild, but also very believable in today's hobby climate. Well, I didn't show up until Saturday, so I suppose I helped bring the average purchase price down a little. And sometimes I set up at this show on Saturday, and when I do, I'll know that ahead of time. Well, this time I didn't have a table in advance, but I take stuff with me just in case a table opens up, and that's more or less what happened this time. So I've got a few quick observations for you today from the buying side, and then some from selling as well. Um, On the buying side, I spent an entire $17 over the course of eight hours. Yes, I was there from nine to five. I spent $17. I ended up with a couple of George McGinnis autos and some Pacers inserts. I wanted to spend more money. I had it ready, but I just didn't see anything that stood out to me. And for those of you that are new to the card scene, just note, if it's not there, it's not there. Don't feel like you have to spend money. I'm more of a mid-end guy, and and this show seemed to be a lot of uh, high-end, a lot of repeat cards, and a lot of junk. Not a lot in between. And that's not meant to be an insult toward this show at all. I really enjoy going. I think it's a lot of fun. But as far as big stuff goes, and I've talked about it on the show before, I've seen an occasional Jordan rookie here and there. This time, there were a number of them to choose from. So either bigger dealers are traveling to this show, or rising prices are bringing these out of the woodwork, or maybe it's a little bit of both. Um, I also saw a Bill Russell PSA 4 rookie. That's the first time I've ever seen a Bill Russell rookie at this show. 
Uh, on the flip side, a lot of tables had a very similar setup. Stacks of the same Luca, Zion, Giannis, and I don't know if it was moving or not, but all this liquid stuff. And obviously there was a lot of football stuff and buck stuff because that this was the day before the Super Bowl. I'm not sure if that stuff was really moving though. Um, I know I had a friend that was looking for a Herbert on card auto. He couldn't find a single one. Um, and then as for you know the rest of the table, the non-showcase stuff, everyone had their junk box, their Frankenstein boxes full of mosaic, optic, hoops, premium, illusion, and chronicles. Um, I am so tired of seeing that stuff. Now, on the selling side, I try to create a table that resembles something that I'd like to shop from. And I do really well with $30 to $40 cards. And then likewise, I'll have a lot of, um, I just put stacks out of lower priced cards. And people like to make stacks that add up to around $30 or $40. And this time I had a lot of low-end rookies from the 90s and 2000s. People were very interested in those. I had people asking about Iverson, Dirk, Pierce. Uh, D. Wade. So that was a nice little change. Kobe stuff, even the low-end stuff, is very popular still. And then Jordan, of course. Everyone likes the Jordan stuff. Um, as far as newer players, I had people ask about Colin Sexton, but otherwise people weren't making the same request that they have in the past for guys like Keldon Johnson or Devontae Graham. And um, I know I've heard this narrative from a lot of people that buyers are moving away from the prospecting kind of stuff. And, and we've seen some numbers that seem to support that. But you've got to be careful because a lot of people that are spreading that narrative or, or posting those numbers are at the same time helping to create that narrative. Um, but now that I've, I've had a mix of, you know, at my table, I had a mix of some of the newer stuff and some of the older stuff. Um, and I would venture to say that the move towards blue chips and legends is definitely a real thing, at least from what I noticed. All right. Moving on to a couple of quick notes about recent releases or upcoming releases. The first one pertains to hoops. And uh, I saw some hoops hobby boxes at this show that I just talked about. It's been out for a little while now, but I didn't even ask for prices. I know people were paying $400 for hobby boxes at one point. I think they're still around that range. I'm not sure. I haven't checked. I've said it before, but I always thought hoops was a rough break at $75 a box. Still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Anyway, there is one significant change in this year's product that I think is worth mentioning. And actually, a couple people noticed it and messaged me about it, so thank you. Uh, but if you look at the back of the rookie relics in hoops, the terminology has changed. They used to say something like the enclosed player worn material is guaranteed by Panini America Incorporated, and I've had no problems with that. I expect to see photo shoot stuff for rookies, especially when it's the first product of the year. The new rookie relics, however, have wording that resembles more of what Topps has done in baseball. They say, The enclosed, officially licensed material is not associated with any specific player, game, or event. So any specific player, game, or event. So now... Um, you know, you have no clue where the relic came from, and this verbiage essentially absolves them of all responsibility for things like manufacturing mistakes or players lying to them about wearing this stuff, even though they signed the affidavit. Um, just because they're, you know, I, I want to be clear though, just because they're changing the wording doesn't necessarily mean they're up to anything, um, you know, egregious, right? My guess is, and, and, you know, I think this is realistic, is there there was no real 
rookie photo shoot, and they didn't have a chance to have players try all these jerseys on in person. So either they sent them to the players or sent them to teams, and they had to go about it that way. Uh, Once again, that's a guess. I don't know. But at the same time, this could be the beginning of them trying to change things in subtle ways, seeing as we're um, both in the middle of a pandemic and the major and the middle of a major buying frenzy. I was talking with a friend about it this week, and he pointed out if there was ever a year to try to pull this off, this is it. And there are a lot of new collectors and a lot of new buyers that might not know enough to care about this stuff, but in the long run, it matters. And Hoops Relics, yes, they're meaningless, but they provide a starting point for this stuff. And before you know it, you see the same changes in products like National Treasures, Flawless, Immaculate, and so on. Um, There aren't any veteran relics in this year's release aside from the second year, the Rookie Remembrance stuff. And that said, as far as I know, you know, even though I have seen some of them are game-worn, a lot of times I think it's been leftover photo shoot stuff. So I don't know how they're going to handle the terminology of veteran relics from here on out. If this were just a technicality to cover for unlikely mistakes or, you know, for COVID, I get it. But my fear is that this gives them a lot of leeway to try all sorts of things that, in my mind... They shouldn't, and that compromises the value and the collectability of their product in the long run. Anyway, that's just something to watch out for and something to think about moving forward. In other product news, I saw some posts on social media this week that seemed to indicate that Select Football is coming to retail sometime in late March. A couple people posted pictures of the store display map Um, And those maps had several different product SKUs on them for Megas and Blasters, those kind of things. Um, Now, I think it's pretty safe to assume that we could see the same for basketball as well. Please, though, do not quote me. I I don't want to see posts on social media saying the Wax Museum guy said we're getting select basketball. It's not a sure thing. Okay, It's not a sure thing. We don't know for sure. I just said I think it's a pretty safe assumption. And that's something I never really envisioned. It, it could change a lot about the product in general. I won't get into the logistics until that happens, if it happens. But um, I think, you know, first off, they'd have to up the print run. Um, and it's, it's going to compromise the product a little bit. I know a couple of people mentioned on Blowout that last year's hybrid and T-Mall releases hurt the overall brand as well. That's what they felt. Well, retail isn't going to make it any better. And I, I would say, you know, if it's also a pretty good indicator that they're going to keep cranking out shiny products and putting this stuff in retail until customers show signs of chromium fatigue. Now, maybe you like all the chromium products, so this could be great news for you, could make it more attainable, um, you know, could be a good thing just depending on your situation. But just something to watch out for, something to think about. Okay, on to the mail. And I posted a few things on my Instagram already. Make sure to check those out if you haven't, including a pretty funny mail day from Michael, a.k.a. Lakers Forum Gold. Um, It was a Taco Bell-themed mail day and and possibly provided us with a new show mascot. So make sure to check that out. But I have a couple other things that I want to talk about as well. And the first one was a one-card mail day from Dan. Some of you might remember... Uh, I talked with him not too long ago about baseball and basketball cards from the 90s. That was episode 98. At the end of that episode, he told me, he said, I've got a Jeff Foster card for you that I know for a fact you don't have. Well, obviously that left me uh, a bit intrigued and 
you know what? He was right because I get an e- uh, I get an envelope from him in the mail, and it is a Jeff Foster card, but Jeff is spelled G E O F F. You know, the wrong way to spell Jeff, and I don't have any other comments about that. But um, so yeah, he was some sort of I don't know lacrosse or rugby player or something. So yes, Dan. You were right. It is a unique card. It's one I don't have, one I've never seen before, one I've never even searched for. I didn't have it in my collection. I have it now. You gave me a good laugh. I got a kick out of it. Thank you very much, Dan. Okay, next is a kind of series of mail days. Um, You might remember last week when Steve and I were joking about irresponsible purchases for our personal collections and his giant Crowder lot, the $25,000 lot. That, By the way, he didn't pay that for it. Um, Well, we had that conversation, I alluded to the fact that I was engaging in a few irresponsible purchasing decisions of my own. And I got some of that mail this week. Um, Most of them were cards from group breaks. A few of them were cards from uh, eBay purchases. But the group breaks, you guys know I usually stay away from those unless the price is reasonable and it's a product I really want and it's got players I really like in it. And that's very rare that that ever happens. Um... And then secondly, they were from a Leaf product. So group breaks, Leaf product, that strikes one and two. But this particular product was their annual in-the-game-used offering. I know a lot of people are bothered by the fact that Leaf doesn't have any league licenses, and I understand that completely. A lot of cards don't even have pictures of the players. Or if they do, they're you know the jerseys are obviously airbrushed. Um, some of them, if they don't have pictures of the players, they have a mock-up of a jersey, so not even a real picture of a jersey. And that, you know, looks kind of weird. So um, I get it, you know, Leaf products aren't for everyone. But there are some cards in the product that I really like and that will always keep me coming back to the product. And primarily, I'm talking about the game-worn nameplate cards. If you haven't figured it out yet, I have a bit of a thing for nameplate patches. And in this Leaf product, the letter patch fills the entire card. So the lack of a player picture doesn't bother me at all. It works really well. Also, it gives me a chance to pick up some more obscure players that we'll probably never see from Panini. For example, last year I picked up a couple letters uh, for former Globetrotter Geese Osby. I picked up a George Gervin letter. You know, where else are you going to find those? So, about a month or two ago, the checklist dropped and I saw there were a couple players I was interested in, mainly Ron Artest and Rick Smith's. And um, at first, I didn't know if the Artest cards were in a Pacers uniform or not. I know from past releases that Leaf has a Pacers jersey they've been working with and a Bulls jersey, and they haven't used the nameplates from either one of them. Um, So, you know, I thought, well, it's at least worth watching. And even if they were Bulls cards, I I might be interested. So I checked on eBay, and there were some player breaks. Um, I could buy just the players I was interested in. Cost stayed relatively low. So I grabbed those two guys in multiple breaks, and in addition to those two, I was picking up other players here and there. Well, in my first break, I hit a Keith Van Horn nameplate, so that was pretty cool. Um, So that was one of the cards I got in in the last couple of weeks. I don't think I posted that one yet. Um, So like I said, it was pretty cool, but at the same time, it was horrible because that initial success encouraged me to keep going with other players. And this is a familiar story for a lot of people. Now, granted, I didn't go crazy, okay? Didn't lose the house, didn't lose the collection or anything, but I did the most group breaking for a single product that I've ever done, which compared to most people isn't even a drop in the bucket. But 
Um, I, that's just not the way that I usually roll. Well, eventually I hit a Ron Artest 101 jumbo patch. And, and by the way, those were ended up being from a Bulls jersey. So uh, the, the idea of a 101 jumbo patch, I should be really enthusiastic about, right? Should be pretty excited about it. And if you look at the 101s from this product, they're all really cool patches. Um, except for Ron Artest. This one was just a part of the number. So really nothing, nothing to differentiate that card from some of the other patch cards other than just that serial number. Um, well, I buy patches, not numbers. So um, then the letter T from Artest showed up on eBay. And even though it was a Bulls jersey, I grabbed it because it pairs up with my Pacers letter T that I have, um, which I thought that was pretty cool. So I will post pictures of those at some point. As a side note, I never hit a Smith's nameplate, which is what I really wanted because I don't think Panini's ever going to give us that. They like to chop the nameplates up and make you know tons of little number to 25 patches out of those. So um, when this product first came out and I saw them on the checklist, I knew if one hit in the market, it would be super expensive. And um, I was hoping to beat the other Smiths collectors to the punch. And yes, there are there's at least one that's very serious, if not uh, two or three Smiths collectors out there. So um, I think the breaking strategy in this case was a decent risk to take. Now, it didn't work, but uh, it was a decent risk to take. Um, I missed one letter completely on eBay that sold pretty cheap because they didn't put Leaf in the title. And I was searching for these things nonstop, so it was probably while I was at work couldn't search for it. Um, the other letter that showed up, which is actually the first letter, the S, that one should be in my mailbox any day now. And as expected, I paid through the nose for it. Well, luckily I moved a bunch of non-PC stuff in recent weeks. So I, you know, I treat it as if, would you trade this pile of stuff for this one card? Yes, 100%. We're going to, you know, sometimes you have to ignore the dollar amounts and think about what you have into the stuff and what you're getting in return. So I'm happy with the trade-off, but yeah, like I said, the whole process was calculated. Um, you know, I don't know if you could even say it was a success or not. I, and, uh, I don't want to make a regular practice of it. Okay. So anyway, I got some leaf cards in the mail. That was a long way of saying that I got some leaf cards. All right. And finally, the last piece of mail I want to talk about was part of a cheap lot. I won on eBay. Um, it was $5.14 shipped, to be exact. It came in a little box. And this little box had two random basketball packs from 2005-2006, three football packs from 2005, including a Bowman one, but um, no, I didn't get any Rodgers rookies, and one NASCAR pack that's some sort of constructible card I didn't even bother with. In fact, I already gave it to a friend. I don't mess with NASCAR. So um, I debated on whether or not I wanted to open these on camera. And, and deep down, I knew I did. So that really wasn't the debate. The, the real issue was I was feeling lazy. I didn't want to get the phone tripod out and set all that up. I think in the video, you'll even see that I, I blamed it on angle and all this stuff. But I, I was just being lazy. All right. So anyway, I did set it up, albeit at a lazy angle. And I'm glad I did. Um, there was one pack of UD Slam and one pack of Upper Deck ESPN. The Slam pack was all junk, but there was a real nice surprise in the second pack. And I know pack openings don't work well at all with just audio, but I do want to play a small snippet of me opening that second pack for you 
real quick. So here's what we got here. We've got um, Marbury Base, Al Harrington Base, Vince Carter. Oh, wow. Look at that. A Ron Artest. Look at that. A Ron Artest card, 15 out of 25. He's wearing 91. This is what my face looks like right now. What are the odds? I My PC guy. Ron Artest. Wow. Okay. So, and I don't have that one. And these are just junk packs that I bought. Um, wow. Okay. I'm pretty stunned about that. Who cares about the rest of it, right? Um, Jason Kidd, Fast Break. Josh Smith, Andre Iguodala, Gerald Wallace, Richard Lewis. Um, all right. There you go. This. Wow. I'm, I'm actually. Uh, I almost didn't video this break. Because the angle sucks and everything, but just pulled a PC card and 15, that's uh, one of his prior numbers. So really cool. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, obviously I sound like a total dork there, but I wanted you guys to be able to share in that moment as much as possible without me going back in time and trying to clean everything up and make it sound different than it was. Um, and just to put all of this into perspective, I looked up the odds for the parallels number to 25 from those packs one in every 150 packs. And remember, that's for any player. The odds of pulling my PC guy, Ron Artest, are insane. He'd have to take those 150 packs and multiply them by the number of cards that have parallels numbered to 25. So that would be the base set plus five insert sets totaling 219 cards. So 150 times 219. If I did all the math correct, the odds of me pulling that Ron Artest card would be one in every... 32,850 packs. So while that card, you know, it might not even sell for the, the 514 shipped that I bought that lot for, uh, who knows? You know, I haven't seen one. I didn't have one. Um, I don't see one for sale anywhere. Now I have it. I have a great story to go with it. Needless to say, I was thrilled. Uh, I still am. And I'm glad I got to share that with all of you. Alright, before I move into today's segment about WorthPoint, I want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about Fanatics. As you guys know, there are costs that go into running a podcast, so I joined their affiliate program. Whether you're looking for signed memorabilia, Super Bowl memorabilia, or any form of sports gear, there's a good chance that Fanatics has it. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.tinyurl.com WMPod and click on the Fanatics logo at the top. Shop as planned, and the Wax Museum podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so by this point, a lot of you know my hobby story, whether you've heard it on this show or you've heard it on one of my guest appearances on another show, um, just real quick, I started collecting around 1995. I've taken a couple small breaks in that time frame, but I've been pretty active in the hobby for the better part of two and a half decades. And still, I don't know everything. There's a lot I don't know, in fact, and I don't remember everything that I've seen and been through. So research is something that I'm very interested in, and it's a big part of what I do. And over the course of time, research tools have come and gone. A lot of them are online. 
And I know there are a lot of people out there that say nothing truly disappears from the internet, but I don't think that's entirely the case. There have been some things that have either disappeared, or if they do still exist, they've been rendered um, virtually useless. So counting something that happened this week, I can think of three tools like that specifically. I'm sure there are others, but none have had an impact close to this magnitude. So I'm going to talk about those real quick leading up to this week. So the first one was Photobucket, because pictures can tell us a lot. And if you look at old threads from sports card message boards in the 2000s, it wasn't uncommon to see someone type these three letters, C-M-B. And it stood for Check My Bucket. And Photobucket was the main hub for people to store pictures of their collections and cards for trade. It was searchable, it was shareable, it was accessible for the longest time, and it housed a lot of hobby history in the process. And you have to remember, this was before Instagram, this was before Facebook, this was before smartphones. So everything hobby-related that happened online, you had to actually sit down at a computer and be very intentional about it. So all of these desktop-based platforms were very important. You know, we, we weren't scrolling on our phones and, and completing hobby tasks while we're standing in line waiting for food. You know, you had to sit down and be very intentional about it and know that you were going to do that. So um, as we moved out of the 2000s and into the 2010s, a couple of things happened. More sharing options opened up, and Photobucket became increasingly difficult to use. Now, you could still navigate to the page, but um, it was dangerous for your computer. It felt like Dante going through the nine circles of hell just to get around all of the ads and the pop-ups. They were trying to move people toward paid memberships, um, but it didn't work. So, while things were kind of difficult to navigate, but they were still accessible... Back in 2018, this is really toward the end, I created a blowout thread called Photo Bucket Purge, where I tried to convince people to log on and download some of the most important hobby folders to their computers, from some of the highest profile collectors, you know, RPAs, LeBron stuff, high-end Jordans, that kind of thing. Um, because for me to do it, for one person to do it, it was just way too time-consuming. I thought if a lot of people joined in on it and we all grabbed a little bit, and then compiled it together later on, it, it would be a worthwhile project. Well, there were five posts in that thread, and four of them were mine, so it didn't work. And the last time I tried to access Photobucket, I couldn't see any card photos, so as far as card research goes, I think it might be toast, and we've lost a lot of uh, very valuable pictures for this hobby. Um, the second great research tool that we've lost recently is one that I've referenced before, and that's the Hobby Kings Forum. And, um, you know, think of it as like blowout, but it was mainly basketball focused. And there was a lot of really valuable information there, a lot of valuable discussion about products, um, about, you know, the Jordan insert hype, right? The insert craze. Um, there, you know, people that were committing fraudulent um, activities or that were participating in fraudulent activities. Right, that information was on there. Even some people that are still active in the hobby today, we have record of them doing bad things back then, or we did have it, I should say, on these forums, so we could refer back to it. Um, well, I believe this website was taken offline in December of 2019. I've chatted a little bit with the owner of the site. He says he still has everything, and it's still archived, so technically it's not gone. It's good to know. It's just not accessible for people right now. So, that, But there is a small chance it could be again someday. And I've, I've told him, hey, I hope you bring this back. 
but at the same time, I realize it's easier said than done, and I'm requesting a lot there. So that brings us to this week, where we suffered perhaps the greatest hobby research loss of all time, and no, that's not hyperbole on my part. Some of you might have seen me posting quite a bit about WorthPoint on social media this week, mainly on Twitter. Um, I think I prefer that platform because you can write a message and the text is the actual focus on the post. I know you can write on Instagram, but really, who's reading Instagram captions? So anyway, WorthPoint. For those of you that aren't familiar with WorthPoint, it's not gone. It's still there. It's a free website that allows you to search all eBay auctions from the past 15 years or so. Pictures and auction descriptions are included as part of that search. And then there's also a paid version that allows you to see what each one of those listings sold for. Well, on February 1st, more than 30 million sports card listings disappeared without any sort of heads up. Or at least they weren't searchable. And the direct links still worked at the time, but to access these links, you would have had to have known the direct link before even knowing you wanted to use it. That's confusing, right? It's a bit of a paradox. Well, before I jump to any big conclusions about what was happening to that information, I wanted to reach out and see if this was a temporary thing or see if there was you know, some sort of explanation. So I contacted WorthPoint through the link on their site, and they said, Hello, thank you for contacting WorthPoint. We recently purged some trading card data from the site as part of a normal optimization process. We still have 180,000 sales results, and we'll be growing that number each month. Thank you, customer care team. So they said some data, um, and that this was part of a normal optimization process. Never mind the fact that this has never been done with sports cards on their site, as far as I know. I mean, they had 15 years of data, and then now 30 million listings are disappearing. So at this point, I was concerned, but I figured the information would come back later behind the a paywall or as part of some um, you know invest boy app that I'd have to purchase so I was frustrated that I'm probably going to have to access this a different way but it didn't really cross my mind that this information was legitimately gone so my next question was okay well who owns the data now so on February 4th one day I'm driving home from work um, I called WorthPoint and the conversation went something like this I said, hi, I see eBay still listed as one of your data partners, but 30 million sports card listings have disappeared. Was this a mistake? And they gave me some general comments, and then they said, we purged those listings as part of a normal process. We're still finding out more. So then I said, well, did WorthPoint sell it to another company? And they said, we don't know yet. We don't know yet, right? So then I said, well, how do you not know if you sold it? You are WorthPoint. I'm asking WorthPoint. And they said they haven't given us the details yet. So I'm assuming that that support was outsourced. It wasn't very good. They weren't in the know, but um, at least they answered. Okay, so two days later, um, remember the direct links had been working at that point. Well, then they became um, inoperable. And as you might expect, there were several conspiracies that came up. Among them, people thought that maybe PWCC paid someone off. I saw someone say that Nat Turner's group could have done it, and someone else um, on Blowout said, quote, they probably didn't want to get caught up in any of the pending lawsuits or investigations. So anyway, the thinking was that anyone um, that could benefit from this information disappearing was making a play for the information. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to those ideas, 
I'm not trying to blame people. I'm not trying to spread these ideas. Um, I'm not trying to spread misinformation. Keep in mind, I'm just narrating events as they went down because I think it's important for people to see what everyone was thinking and see the context. So February 7th rolls around and a listener of the show and, and poster on the blowout forums, his name is John, um, he messaged me with a, uh, or he emailed me a message he received from Worth Point CEO. So first off, thank you, John, for reaching out and to him and to me and for trying to help with this thing. Um, and it, it was a fairly short message, so I'm just going to read the most important part of it. But the CEO wrote, the data was just not used enough to justify the capacity. It was one of the least used verticals and consumed a disproportionate amount of space. Sorry for the disappointment, and we are refunding customers who prepaid to use it. So that was progress, uh, but it still didn't tell me if the information would be coming back. But it did give me a method that I could use to contact the CEO of WorthPoint, whose name is Will. And that's what I did. So I said, Good afternoon, my name is Kyle, and I'm an avid sports card collector. I wanted to reach out and check in on the status of sports card data on WorthPoint. I really appreciate you hosting this information on your site for all these years. I noticed that about 30 million listings have been erased from the site. Is this information that's coming back? If not, was it sold to someone else, and will I be able to access it elsewhere? Thanks again. So I got a fairly quick response, and it was a bit of a lengthy response, but um, I think it's worth reading on air because I want you to see what he said. So he replied, no, they will not be coming back, and I suspect that number is a bit low. The number I gave out has been 41 million deletes in the first purge we did this month, which was some things other than trading cards, although this was focused on them. We actually purge things monthly as it's not practical to house everything. We just normally purge and add at the same time so it's not this visible. Given this was larger than normal in the, in the deletions, we separated them. When I started the company 14 years ago, 100 million items in storage with 400 million low-res images was considered crazy. Service times required by Google were much more lenient. We are over 500 million items with billions of high-res images. This is taxing our ability, and thus was a business decision to optimize our performance while we rebuild the infrastructure during the first half of the year. This is a very expensive task. The data surprisingly did not get a lot of use, although I realize it was very important to some. It certainly did not come anywhere near justifying the space it took up, which in the short term was very scarce space. As it cannot be resold like any data we have in our price guide, we deleted it. As we rebuild card data, we will likely do it with a different approach later this year. Sorry for the disappointment, as I understand collector passion. In our case, it was a business decision, which are often based on different logics. I also appreciate the polite email, as some have not been. If you have an annual account, we will refund the unused balance. So um, the big thing in there, among other things, he said that, um, quote, as it cannot be resold like any data we have in our price guide, we deleted it. So um, there you have that. I, I thanked him. You know, it wasn't the response I wanted, but it was... Um, a worthwhile one. So I thanked him for the response and let him know I would pass the word along. And he followed that up with another lengthy response that once again, I think is worth reading on air. So here goes. He said, WorthPoint has been a friends and family funded company for 14 years. And because money is and was limited, there have been difficult decisions on the way. Well, you pay things like five kids going through college and employee salaries. 
this was one of those decisions and realities. There is, was no conspiracy on the data, and I have seen some on the boards. I love collecting and am passionate about it, although I do agree it's disappointing on the dominance of a few firms have in certain aspects of grading and authentication. I hope someday when we are big, we are still what is the core of WorthPoint, our values, and transparency. I remember the Google creed, do no evil. I am always available, and as I told someone else, we have not abandoned this area. We will just try to do something more meaningful in the next effort. Will. So, once again, he mentioned, you know, I talked about people had conspiracies earlier. He mentioned, he said there's no conspiracy. Um, I know there are people out there that aren't going to believe that, and I'm not here to tell you what to believe, but now you've heard the information straight from the source. You can interpret it how you'd like. Um... And while I didn't go into all the details on social media, like I said, I've been posting about this there. And the more I post about it, it's becoming clear to me that a lot of people never understood the significance of WorthPoint to begin with. So I got several responses from people saying things like, well, just use 130point.com. Or someone even said, just use Maven, problem solved. Like, you really think I'm going to record a 100 plus podcast about sports cards and I can't find pricing data? In 2021, when every other Instagram post is a stupid graph or a chart? No, it's not the pricing data I'm concerned with. It's 15 years of auction pictures and 15 years of auction descriptions. This is bad on multiple levels. Okay, Let me give you some examples of, of how I would use WorthPoint in the past. I use it daily, um, or I did use it daily. Um, so let's say you're interested in uh, learning about the tops overtime 101s from the mid-2000s, and you want to see what they look like. Well, if ComC doesn't have any in their archives, and eBay doesn't have any currently listed, where do you go? You used to be able to search them on WorthPoint, and you'd have a pick in less than 30 seconds. Okay, well, that option's gone now. You can't search that stuff. Or let's say you have a tough insert and you're trying to figure out the pack odds. I have a lot of people ask me about pack odds, which surprisingly there's not a site that does a really good job of housing those odds, at least one that I've seen. If uh, that's something you're interested in and you have the ability to do that, that might be something worth considering. But um, So people would ask me about it, and what I'd do is I'd go on WorthPoint and I would grab uh, an old listing that had a picture of either the box or the pack, and then we could usually grab the odds off of there. So that was... Uh, a convenient option that now is no longer there. And here's another example of how I've used WorthPoint. Shortly after Kobe died, uh, there was a Panini patch that showed up on eBay that had a piece of the Larry O'Brien NBA Finals trophy. And they didn't clarify that it was used in the finals. But I wanted to see, you know, hopefully prove that this was a legitimate patch and it wasn't something that somebody put in there. And I wanted it for my collection. So um, there were only 10 cards in the print run. I went to WorthPoint to try and check for consistency in the set. That's a big thing when you're looking for fake patches. Look for consistency in the rest of the set. And I found three cards that had uh, from the same print run that had corresponding finals pieces. That gave me the assurance I needed to make that purchase. It's a card I'm very happy about owning today. That wouldn't have happened without WorthPoint. I would not have bought that without that assurance. So... That part there even you know alluded to fraud and patch swapping, but WorthPoint played a much bigger role in uncovering fraud than just that. Let's go back a couple of years um, well, to 2019 and then early 2020. 
where members of the blowout forums unearthed over a million dollars worth of card fraud. And, you know, it's probably doubled now that all the prices have gone up. So that could be trimmed cards, could be altered patches. There were all sorts of things. Some of you might even remember the episode where I talked about the athletic article that I was interviewed for. That article mentioned some of that stuff. Well, the majority of the quote-unquote before pictures that were used in uncovering this fraud were all retrieved using WorthPoint. And you'll notice a lot of these major consigners refuse to remove a listing for trimming or alteration, even if it's obvious, unless you can provide them with before pictures. And even then it's kind of tough because we've seen Brent from PWCC before say that before pictures do not constitute evidence. Excuse me? Well, you know, for a lot of people they do. For people that are reasonable or a little more reasonable, they do. Well, guess what? All of those before pictures are gone. And when I first started working on this episode, you know, I I started writing some stuff up about WorthPoint, but I didn't have a lot of answers yet. And I thought all the data was going to be out there still, and I I could try and move people towards, hey, let's do something about it. Let's have a campaign or let's, you know, do something to get this information back. But we can't even do that now. It's gone. And if you can't tell, I'm, I'm pretty upset about it. Uh, there's a lot of hobby conversation out there right now about a lot of clowns. And a lot of stuff that's more on the trivial side. And you know what? That's fine. People can talk about whatever they want. But this is something that deserves attention. Not that we can do anything about it, right? We can't go back and, and um, unerase the data. But it still needs to be recognized, right? It's it's getting ignored by people that know better or by people that don't have enough of an understanding to know why this stuff matters to weigh in. Well, if you're listening today, now you do. Okay, so this information isn't coming back, but I think there's a valuable lesson that we can take from this moving forward. If you have information or if you have access to information that's practical and useful and valuable for the rest of the hobby, share it. Archive it in some way. Do something about it to let people know. And for example, I spent um, the entire summer of 2019 building trackers for some of the high-end RPAs in the basketball card world. By the way, that's a pretty good resource now that WorthPoint's gone. And I have people messaging me constantly about these cards. And uh, I would say, you know, they're very expensive cards. So a lot of the people that buy these are some of the most resource-equipped people that we have in the hobby. And I'll talk with some of these people, and then I'll ask them, hey, do you have pictures of, or do you have more RPAs that aren't in the tracker? Say, oh yeah, I've had one, you know, for years. And and they won't even take a couple of minutes to send me pictures of cards um, that I track that they currently own or used to own. And, you know, it, 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 it baffles me, right? And that's just one example. But, and I know that doesn't apply to everyone, but all of that is to say, if you have information, please share it. Because when this stuff is held back or even worse, when this stuff disappears, everyone in the hobby suffers because of it. And if you think that's hyperbolic, you don't really understand the long-term effects of hobby fraud. All right, there you have it. Um, maybe there was something I said that resonated with you today. You go all the way back to the first segment. Maybe you have some current thoughts on the card show scene. Maybe you have some thoughts on select coming to retail, or maybe you have a a great hidden alternative to worth point that I don't know about. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at wax museum podcast. I'm also on Twitter under 
at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This works very similar to the Fanatics link that you can go to at www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It doesn't cost you anything on top of your purchase. We all use eBay. Um, I put a lot of work into this. In fact, I recorded this episode twice because I screwed up. So please, if you want to help support the show, please, at least, at the very least, do your eBay um, purchasing through that link. It's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. Until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.